You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. Good morning, friends. Oh, I love Christmas time. I love celebrating what God has done, enjoying what he's doing, and looking forward to what he's going to do, because he is the one who was and is and is to come, right? Which means that we have the joy of looking back and remembering through the, the, the benefit of hindsight how incredible the unfolding of his coming was, and we have the indescribable joy of Christ in us, the hope of glory and experiencing him coming in new and profound ways, and we are looking forward to an unfolding story of his return, and it just makes me so excited to be able to stand up here today and talk about how good Jesus is and is going to be to us. Amen? Any parents in here love to watch your kids open awesome gifts? Woo, I'm excited. I love to watch those kids get just like, freaked out, just like they bl- like blow a fuse almost sometimes when they get like the gift that they were really hoping to get. You know those Christmases, like when moms and dads, you know what I'm talking about, like you kind of extended yourself to get like one of those special gifts or a couple of those special gifts because you know it's like exactly what they either want or need. And uh, we get the, the joy of experiencing the anticipation, like we know this secret and we can't wait for them to unwrap it. I think for me, like the best gifts I've ever received are the ones that also speak to my identity. So like, for example, when I was 15 years old, my dad uh, extended himself and bought me a really, really nice acoustic guitar. I'd only been learning the guitar for maybe less than a year, but he bought me a Martin. Yes, whoo, come on. I'm sure like if I threw a stone, I'd, I'd hit a musician in here, you know what I mean? Um, so I got this Martin guitar and he knew that I was a worshiper, that I love to worship the Lord and I could barely play my guitar at that point, but he dropped some serious coin on a real guitar. And what that gift did, it spoke to my identity and called me higher. He knew that I was a worshiper, so he gave me a tool to worship and it like, it in it lit up my passions, and I played that guitar constantly. My, I'm sure my dad had no idea the fullness of what he was investing in in that moment because I spent countless hours through my teenage years worshiping the Lord by myself in my bedroom, all because of that gift. As a parent, we feel the father's anticipation and the joy of giving our kids these kinds of gifts because he is the father of lights and every good and perfect gift comes from him. So if you can imagine this, God is almost continually that Christmas morning dad. He's like, he has surprises for us waiting throughout our lives and throughout our days, like these presents that we get to unwrap of his, the presence of his presence. Like those moments when we recognize his closeness and we become aware that he never leaves and never forsakes or we feel his affection in a new way and it's like we've opened up a present that he was just waiting for us to run into. And he's just constantly like that. He's that doting, extravagant father. So I want you guys to know that the moment you feel any kind of guilt for lavishing an incredible gift on your kid, let's just remember that our Father in heaven 
pretty much bankrupted heaven on the first Christmas. I mean, bankrupt is the, is the wrong word because God is never ending, but like he spared no expense. He cashed out eternity to bring it into our realm to show us who he really is. That's the kind of father that we have. He gave us himself. He gave us the son. He gave us Emmanuel, God with us. And today we get to celebrate this Christmas when dad gave us all of heaven's riches in one fell swoop. The greatest gift, the most extravagant gesture of fatherly love. Isn't he benevolent? Isn't he generous? Isn't he self-giving? Isn't he overflowing? There's so many biblical prophecies preparing the people for the Messiah. And I wanna look at one of the most famous ones. This is Isaiah 7, Isaiah 7, 14. See, it wasn't enough that that God was coming in the flesh, that the word would be made flesh. He wanted to make sure that no one missed it. And so he sent all these prophets, right? And the prophets even talked about another prophet who would come. We talked about this over the last couple weeks, but there were prophets who talked about the prophet, John the Baptist, who would come to prepare the way, who would prepare a path in the wilderness. He would tell us to prepare our hearts for the receiving of the Lord. And it's a lot like if you, let's say the governor was coming to visit, and he, like, you really didn't want to miss that call. And the governor's office knew that you didn't want to miss that call. And so the governor's assistant's assistant calls first, right? And the assistant to the assistant governor calls and says, hey, the governor's assistant is going to call with really important news. I think the governor's going to come. I don't know all the details, but be ready. He's going to call. And then the, the governor's assistant calls and says, the governor's coming. Prepare your house to receive the governor of Texas. And this is John the Baptist's job. But here's one of the prophets that came before John the Baptist. This is Isaiah 7:14. And keep in mind, this prophecy is from 700 years before Jesus even came. Check this out. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That is the wildest prophecy. We, we practice prophecy around here every once in a while. Could you imagine someone getting up here and giving that prophetic word? That would, I mean, half the church would be, you know, <laughs> it would be, I mean, it's audacious to say that the savior of the world is coming through a virgin. They're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And, but then we, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter one, which opens with the genealogy of Jesus himself. And then we read this story of this sweet, blessed young woman named Mary, who is a virgin. It's found to be with child, and we find out through an angel that what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and this child is the prophesied one. This is Emmanuel. You will call him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins, and so this unwed teenage girl is pregnant, and she's the one bringing a Messiah to the world. How many of you guys believe that the savior of the world came through a virgin. 
that makes it pretty easy for us to believe the rest of the crazy stuff, like speaking in tongues and walking through walls and walking on water. Like all the rest of the stuff seems like several steps down beneath us believing that Jesus came through a virgin, right? But we get so accustomed to it. We get so used to this story in America. We're just like, oh yeah, we know, it's the Virgin Mary. But could you imagine Mary and Joseph living in this time that is, I wanna kind of like try to paint a picture of what it would have been like to live in that place in that time. Could you imagine living in a time and a place where everybody believed that God was angry and retributive and we had to obey every single one of the smallest details of this law that's been filtered down to the strictest detail, including how we dressed, what we ate, when we washed our hands, and who we could associate with. That's the kind of like day and age and place that Mary found herself to be pregnant with Jesus. It was the kind of time where if you were to break any of these laws, you could be banished from society. You could even face death. They, they considered it like diseases to be a curse. And these, if you were found sick, you could be removed from society. Back then in, in ancient Israel, women were, were more like property than they were people. And animal sacrifices, that's how we thought we could appease God. It was a dark time. And that's if you were born into the Jewish nation. See, if you were born into another country, it could have actually been a whole lot worse. But even the Israelite nation, even the Jews, the very ones tasked with carrying the testimony of God, of God were a conquered people. They were in an identity crisis and they were in a faith vacuum. Somewhere between the first Adam and the last Adam, the knowledge of God had been all but snuffed out. You guys know that Jesus is called the last Adam, right? It's like that famous line. Any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> Let's see if I can nail this line. It's in a woman's voice, so I'm not going to, but anyway. It's when fact became legend and legend became myth and some things which should not have been forgotten were lost. See, when Jesus came around, it was a dark time. There were only a few people still carrying around the hope and belief that the Messiah would come and only a few who knew the prophecies to try to piece that puzzle together. These prophecies said that Jesus would come in a land dwelling in deep darkness and he would bring the greatest light and the most joy. These prophecies, you can call them extreme foreshadowing. Like God loves to like retell this story so we don't miss it. He retells it over and over and over again. If you were to flip a couple chapters over to Isaiah 9, it says this. There will be no more gloom in the land of Zebulun. Isaiah 9.2 says this, the next verse says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Have you guys ever uh, accidentally looked at your iPhone at like three or four in the morning after you've been asleep for four hours? And even if it's like turned way down, the brightness is like, oh my God, my retinas. <laughs> 
and you're like adjusting the light factor immediately. But like in the middle of the day, it's so normal. Your, your eyes have been flooded with light all day. Well, when Jesus came, it was as if the whole world was asleep and the brightest iPhone in history rang on everyone's desk at the same time. That's what it was like when Jesus came. Could you imagine Jesus walking around ancient Israel when everybody is so bound up in religion and fear and control and shame and he's just like, he's a, he's in, like there's like a million frowns and he's just a smiling God walking around in the midst of a million frowns. He stuck out like a sore thumb because he was so free and, and happy, and for some reason he didn't abide by any of their rules, and yet he was moving in more power than anyone who held to all of the rules. In John 1, it says it like this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness can't even comprehend this kind of light. It's the true light that gives light to everyone. That's the light that was coming into the world. Or Isaiah 60 Verse one, it says, arise and shine for your light has come. See, John the Baptist, he wanted to make sure that he wasn't the light. He's, and they even asked him, like, who are you? And he's like, no, 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 I'm not the one that's prophesied. One is coming after me who's mightier than I, who was from before my time, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He's the light. So Jesus Check this out. This is a cool thing I found. In Matthew chapter four, when Jesus starts his ministry, the very first time he starts preaching after the temptation, do you know where he goes? The land of Zebulun, prophesied in Isaiah. Can you imagine what it was like for those people dwelling in deep darkness to see such a great light? Those people who had missed out their whole life from hearing the words of life pouring forth from the words of their maker, from the, the, the mouth of their maker. It said that of Jesus that the words on his lip were like graciousness poured forth. Could you imagine just being one of those people who happened to be sitting in the crowd when Jesus walked up for the first time and you're just a Zebulonite who'd never experienced anything like this? This is the Jesus. People would travel for days just to hear like one syllable from his lips carried on the wind. This is the Jesus who would carry their friends for miles and dig down through a roof to lower their crippled friend just to get close to Jesus. This is the Jesus where people would travel from surrounding villages to this one shore where their new Jesus would be. And it was so packed out, the only thing Jesus could do was get on a boat, launched out to shore a little ways so that he could see all the face of his beloved children and they could see his face. This light had come and everyone was drawn and everyone wanted a front row seat, but only a few people could get a front row seat and Jesus had a fix for that too. He knew that the way that he could get closest to you was through his death, resurrection, and pouring out of his spirit so that the spirit of Christ dwells in your heart now and you don't have to walk another city. You can turn within and find the Lord. We all have a front row seat to his glory in this very moment. Let's read on. It's Isaiah 9.3. 
You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. Even more gladness. <laughs> this is good news. And they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Are you starting to get an understanding of what kind of joy would overtake people's hearts when they encounter Jesus for the first time? For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Jews of that time would even know this. It's, it's a more like uh, obscure prophecy. They would even know the town that he would be born in. This is Micah 5 too. It says that the shepherd ruler would come from like this little town of no repute. It's like a, a one stoplight kind of town that's not even big enough to have a Dairy Queen, you know? Like one of those towns that you drive through and you're like, what do people do here? You know, like, <laughs> anybody think that on a road trip when you're driving through West Texas? You're like, what does their life look like? <clears throat> uh, that's Bethlehem. That's where Jesus comes, this tiny little town that is not famous for, for anything other than it made it into this obscure prophecy in Micah 5.2. And what Bethlehem means it's a combination of two Hebrew words that mean house of bread. There's more of that divine foreshadowing, right? Because Jesus would come and, and in John 6, he would say things like, I'm the bread of life, the bread that's come down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, but he who eats of this bread will live forever. My flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. This is eternal life that you would eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like he calls himself the bread of heaven because he would be the one who comes and sustains humanity and for the journey back to the heart of God. Nothing like the incarnation has ever happened. You guys know what the word incarnation ha is? It's not, it's not a type of flower that you give your mom on Mother's Day. <laughs> Carne means meat. If you've ever gone to order a taco, you know this. <laughs> it means that it was the enfleshment of God. It was when Eternity took on the corporeal. It was the intersection of, I'm getting ahead of myself, but nothing has happened, has ever happened like the incarnation. Now, a lot of people think that Jesus had like a start date, like when he was born, that was when Jesus came on the scene, but rest assured that the son of God is preexistent and has been so forever. He is the one who has been continually proceeding forth from the father. As it says in uh, Hebrews, he is the very radiance of God, the exact representation of his nature before time and forever. Ever, his identity will be linked with the father. He will always be the son of the father and the father will always be the father of the son. 
This is one of the most mysterious, wonderful things about the Trinity that we're gonna be exploring forever. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed in perfect union, this divine romance that we have been caught up into. Some theologians compare Jesus to the light that proceeds from the sun that continually flows forth, but even that is a metaphor that falls short because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The words that I speak, I got from my dad. I only do what I see the Father doing. So Jesus came in the darkest time in human history to be the light, to show us the very glory of the face of God that we could trust God again. Jesus' begottenness is eternal. He's never had a starting point. He was made man in the incarnation, but he's always been the eternal son. This is one of the most incredible things to think about. Are you all familiar with Colossians 1 where it says that Jesus is in him By him, through him, and for him, all things were made. Everything that is made has been made through him, in him, which means that all dimensions exist within him. He's so big that he can't dwell in heaven. Even the highest heavens can't contain God. Have you ever read that crazy verse? I always thought God dwelt in heaven, but heaven dwells in God. And so the one who is preexistent, in whom all things are held together, in whom all things were made, somehow found a way to put all of God into a seed. Into Mary. So that we could see him and be reconciled and redeemed back into the family of God. Jesus is God's revelation of himself to us, which means that he didn't just bring a message, he is the message, beloved. In prayer this week, I had a a vision in our Tuesday prayer set and I I went into this vision and I saw um, a, a person drowning offshore. And they, I realized that they represented humanity in this vision and I saw Father, Son, and Holy Spirit standing on the shore. And you guys know what people do when they need to rescue someone who's been sucked out by an undertow into the ocean? They form a human chain, don't they? And so the Father reaches out through the Spirit who reaches out through Jesus who reaches out to grab drowning humanity to reel us back to shore. And when we got back to shore, they all wrapped their arms around us, which is where we are currently seated in the heavens in Christ Jesus. The incarnation is the permanent union of God and man. This is why there's no longer anything that can separate. It's not because we did something, it's because he did something. Guys, the way that he came to us is so rich and intentional. We could preach a million messages for a million years and not exist, like, we couldn't tap out all the glory and beauty hidden in it. That God would consider it holy to come through as a, as a Jewish baby into a a conquered nation, which means that he came as 
in exile as an immigrant, his birth spoke to the marginalized. Like if you remove from the nativity scene all the Jews, Arabs, refugees, immigrants, stargazers, magicians, lawbreakers, and pregnant teens, you would only have barnyard animals. His birth was also an endorsement of the glory of the human frame. We all know that famous verse of Psalm 137 where it says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And we stand in front of the mirror on mornings when we feel puffy and having a bad hair day and we claim that verse over ourselves, you know what I mean? <laughs> like I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> Jesus coming as a man who had no natural beauty that we should desire him was an exclamation point and stamp on the reality of the glory of the human body. He kept it too. He kept that body. You guys, there's no greater place to experience the love and presence of the Father than, than through the human frame. You know that, right? Jesus was actually experiencing the love of the Father in new and overwhelming ways when he was in that body that he couldn't experience when he was just in the heavens before in paradise. He couldn't wait to get in that body and hear the words of God wash over him, those same words that twist the cedars and shatter the oaks, the same words that are hovering over the waters, that booming voice of God, that thing that shakes us to, to the core, he could only experience that in the human frame and that's what we get to experience now. Hey Alexis, can you go and get those kids? And worship team, can you start coming out? And sound booth, could you dim the lights a little bit? We're going to do something together. It, if, it like offends the human brain to think of how the king of glory came as a helpless infant, right? We celebrate with great joy that eternity has broken into the temporal Peace has come to evict all of our turmoil. Rest has invaded our strife. Infinite joy intersected our finite brokenness. Guys, Jesus came like a party crasher who was a party himself. He was the dawn of new creation. He's broken into our morning. Eternal God stooped down to take on all of our limitations and shatter them. Everybody came in with a candle. This candle in our hand is to remind us not only that he is the light that's come into the world, but we're now the light. He says to us that you are the light of the world. Look at these cute kids. Guys, we might feel like there's darkness in our lives, but we get to let the light in. He is the one who is still standing at the door knocking. And I want you to hear this. I know we're overwhelmed by cuteness right now. But when Jesus is knocking at our door, in his other hand is not a list of to-dos. In his other hand are a dozen grocery bags filled with the delights of heaven and wine because he wants to come and dine with us. So what we're going to do is Nancy has prepared a reading with some of these kids. They're going to read to us 
the birth story of Jesus. And when you feel the joy or peace or presence of the Lord, I want you to twist your light on. This one's. I want you to twist. It's the bulb, just the bulb at the top. Twist the bulb at the top. When you feel the joy, peace, or presence of the Lord as these kids read the birth story to us, and then we're going to stand together and sing just one more song. Hi, everybody. If all my readers could stand up, and then all of the big kids here on the ground, if you can back up this way and turn around, I want you to be able to see, okay? We'll come this way, Jake and Hattie. Let's move this way. Move back, and we're gonna turn around where we can see, okay? You guys look fantastic. I am so proud of you. It's very special to hear the Christmas story. It's very special to hear it from the the children. So thank y'all, okay. Here we go. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Joseph wasn't sure if he should still make Mary his wife, but he didn't want to embarrass her either. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to her son, to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet that virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. those days, Caesar issued a decree that all people in the Roman world would be counted, so everyone had to go to their hometown to register. So jo- Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. 
An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and laying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace and goodwill to all. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. 